Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and as you turn there, I want to give you a little historical context of what we'll be studying this week and the next weeks after this. Traditionally, October 31st, 1517, marks the spark of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, the day before November 1st, All Saints Day, an obscure German monk in a small town of Wittenberg nailed 95 theses for debate to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Luther was posting things on people's walls long before it was popular. And from, from this auspicious beginning over the next few years, a crack, and then finally a rift and schism in the once unified Catholic Church split, and Protestantism was born as other men um, like Melanchthon, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, um, Martin Bucer joined the ranks of the Reformers, and a, a conflict with Rome emerged, with Roman Catholicism. And as the debates happened and the books were written, it became clear that the areas of dispute could really be narrowed down to five. Five areas where the the Protestant reformers and Rome disagreed. Those have been distilled and called the five solas. In in those days, academic disputes were done in Latin. And so the the five onlys, sola means only. We're going to take one week For the next five to go through them, they are sola scriptura, scripture alone. By what authority, by what standard can we judge matters of faith and conscience? And the reformers were univocal in their insistence, scripture alone, sola scriptura, that is the only acceptable and valid foundation for faith and practice. How how was salvation be understood? Was it God's free gift or a mechanism that could be utilized in the sacramental system, and the answer to that was sola gratia, by grace alone. Salvation, the reformers insisted, was God's gift. You could not force God to be gracious. He freely gave it. It could not be doled out through sacraments. How was salvation achieved? Was it through human work and merit along with faith? And probably the most famous of the solas, sola Fide, no, they insisted, salvation was through faith alone. Through whose work and merit was salvation accomplished? Was it through Christ and the saints who together contributed a treasury of merit? Again, sola Christus, through or in Christ alone, our salvation is found. It's quite likely we'll be singing in Christ alone that week. Um, and finally, the reformers' insistence that praying to saints and Mary, or venerating them, or whatever you want to call it, challenged the supremacy of the God who says he will share his glory with no one, and sola dei gloria, that all of this was to the glory of God alone. That those five solas, sola scriptura, upon God's word alone, sola gratia, 
by grace alone, sola fide, through faith alone, sola Christus, in Christ alone, sola dei gloria, to the glory of God alone. Those became the primary issues of contention. And so my hope is that through the next five weeks, we'll learn a little church history. We'll try to figure out why did that matter then? Why was that such a big issue 500 years ago? And then try to figure out, did the reformers get the right of it biblically? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Luther thought. It doesn't matter what Calvin thought. What matters is what God has said. And then trying to figure out, does this matter today? Are these just long, dead matters in church history with no direct relevance to us? No, I'm going to argue in every case those challenges exist, although at times in different guise. So that's, that's our plan is to walk through those. So... <clears throat> The, the timeline at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation was that on October 31st, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. That date is not incidental. On All Saints Day, a treasury of relics was going to be put on display in that cathedral, um, owned by Frederick the Wise, the prince of um, that province in Germany. A treasury so great that if you gazed upon it properly and in the right order while Mass is being recited, a little under two million years could be knocked off of purgatory for you or for a loved one. This was quite a large display. And Luther's 95 Theses were initially directly attacking indulgences. And yet, as this picked up steam, and he first went and had a debate with Cardinal Cajetan in Augsburg in October of 1518, which led to the Leipzig Leipzig debate with Johannes von Eck, even though Luther was challenging indulgences, he was challenging Rome's understanding of the gospel. And as I said, justification by faith alone was the central tenet of the Reformation. What these debates quickly became about was not indulgences, not purgatory, not justification by faith, but over the matter of sola scriptura. You see, before you can settle a matter, you've got to come to agreement on how the matter will be settled. And when Luther would challenge purgatory, when Luther would challenge indulgences, he would get responses from Eck citing Catholic tradition, citing the Catholic fathers or popes. And Luther would say, no, 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 that's inadmissible. You need to defend your case from Scripture alone. And so very quickly, that became the matter of debate where they ultimately pinned Luther down as a heretic, was on precisely that. Let me read a comment from Sylvester Prarius, a, a Roman Catholic theologian who wrote this. In his um, official dogma of the first, I'm oh, sorry, in his encyclical um, dialogue concerning the power of the Pope. He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the pontiff of Rome as infallible for a rule of faith, from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority, is a heretic. That was Roman Catholic dogma. That was what Luther was facing. That not only was the claim being made that the Pope and the councils and tradition were inerrant, but they actually were the source of authority from which Scripture got its authority. Um, Roman Catholic apologists say, look, if the church had decided there were five gospels, you'd have five gospels, not four. And so ultimate authority rested, according to Rome, the councils and the pope. There was some internal dispute between factions within Roman Catholicism, between the Curialis and the Conciliaris, but ultimately whether the pope or the councils were supreme. But what they agreed upon was the scripture alone 
was not the authority. In December um, of 10th of 1520, Luther responded to a papal bull that had given him 60 days to recant of his heresy by burning it in the fire. He said, because you have confounded the truth of God, today the Lord confounds you into the fire with you. Consequently, on January 3rd, 1521, Luther is summarily excommunicated and summoned to appear the Diet of Worms, where he would be judged and put on trial in front of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. The results of this trial could result in his execution and death. Rome had recently burned people at the stake. And that is where Luther, on trial, made his famous declaration when challenged whether or not he would accept the authority of the Pope, the authority of the councils, he said famously, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. He was condemned. And on his way home, he was abducted, actually by friends posing as enemies. He was abducted by men with swords and bows and whisked away and hidden in a castle so that Rome couldn't put him to death. And from there, he translated the, the Bible the New Testament first, then the Old Testament into German, and the Reformation began to rage. But that central issue, first in his debate with Cajetan, then in Leipzig, and then finally in Worms, on the authority of Scripture, that's where we've got to start. As we try to figure out what is true, the first question we need to ask is, where do we go to find truth? And I've got a definition here on the insert that I think is helpful I'll give you the blanks that we'll walk through in four points, and it is this. What does sola scriptura mean? I believe it means that only scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority. Only scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority. I think Luther is right. I think the reformers were right on this. But we'll spend the most of our time judging whether Scripture declares this is right, if this is a right understanding. We're looking at those four points. Our text primarily this morning will be 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, a familiar passage to many of you, which says this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, let's dive in. Looking at this in four points. First, only scripture is God breathed. Only scripture is God breathed. And we talk about scriptures being inspired. Technically, the writers were inspired. Inspiring is to breathe in, the in, right? It just doesn't sound very good to say the scriptures are expired. 
right? So we say God breathed. But, but the word there in, in, in 2 Timothy, Theonustus, is God breathed. God exhaled. God breathed out. The, and into the men, they were inspired, and he caused the scriptures to be written. On this point, Luther and Rome had no dispute. And so I'll move quickly through this point. Only scripture is God breathed. But here's the point. The very words of scripture are God's words. And that's emphatic and important to make because we live in a day where people more often want to argue, well, the message of scripture is what's true or inspired. It's, it's the general point or principle. The problem is the scripture itself will allow no such understanding. Listen to the first account of God's words being written down, it was God who told Moses to do so, in Exodus 24.4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Exodus 34.27, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. What we call the 10 commandments are simply the 10 words. God himself with his own finger writing them. So it's no surprise when we come to the New Testament and we see our Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't treat the Old Testament simply as the message is roughly what God wanted. He goes even further than words. He goes even further than letters. We saw a few weeks ago, he goes to parts of letters, jots and tittles. In Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is a radical inerrantist. So the claim that scripture is God-breathed is that the very words of scripture are God's very words. Listen to Acts 4.25, how the early church spoke of, how Peter spoke of the inspiration and the process. Acts 4. <clears throat> 25, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, then he quotes Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So Peter understood Psalm 2 was written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Through the mouth of our father David, said by the Holy Spirit. The very words of Scripture are God's words. The words matter. Second, therefore, how you treat God's word is how you treat him. How you treat God's word is how you treat him. And again, there'd be no dispute between Luther and Rome on this point. Jesus makes this point crystal clear in John 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus is insisting that to believe his word is to believe the one who sent him. What you do with Jesus' word is what you do with his father. A few verses later, verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you if you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus insisted precisely because they didn't believe the prior revelation, they don't accept and receive him. What they did with Moses and his writings is what they're doing with Jesus. Even clearer in John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. What you do with God's word is what you do with him. It's his representative. And so there can be no place for a love or a reverence for God and a treating lowly of his word. All other religions that don't recognize God's word as God's word, whatever they might say about God, treat him with dishonor. 
Listen to Hebrews 3, 7. This is amazing. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying, today if you hear his voice, and he quotes Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews begins a quotation of Psalm 95 by saying, therefore, as the Holy Spirit, then present active verb, is saying. When, when Psalm 95 is read, according to the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is speaking. God is speaking. What that means is that the Bible is not the word God spoke in the past. What it means is the scripture is the word God is now speaking to us. God is now speaking to us in his word, and so how we respond to that word that God is speaking to us is how we respond to God. So the author of Hebrews warns, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. To resist the message of the gospel, to shrink back to Judaism, isn't simply to resist God's word, but to resist him who is speaking. How we respond and treat God's word is how we respond and treat him. Okay? Let's move on. And again, no conflict there between Luther and Rome. And I want to make one other caveat here. When we speak about Rome and Roman Catholicism, I am speaking about the system of beliefs and doctrines. You can go check these things up on the Vatican website. And I want to make a distinction between Roman Catholicism as a system of beliefs, dogmas, and thoughts, and the average Catholic you might meet on the street. I'm going to say some clear, strong things about Roman Catholicism, some of the errors in it. And I wouldn't want you to think that that is how I would treat a Roman Catholic. I would encourage you, if you have Catholic friends, to ask them questions, see what they believe. My, my father, until a few weeks before his death, was a Catholic, and he wasn't aware of and didn't believe half of the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. So I want to make that distinction. I'm going to speak strongly. Luther speaks, very, Luther speaks strongly, more strongly than anyone you've ever heard. Um, I assure you that. Against Roman Catholicism as a system of belief and thought. But I would encourage you, plead with you, to treat your Roman Catholic neighbor um, by asking questions, don't make assumptions. Figure out what they believe, what they've been taught. Okay. Now we get to a point where Rome and Luther and the Reformers would differ. Only Scripture is inerrant. Only Scripture is inerrant. Now, it's popular nowadays to charge that Luther never believed in inerrancy. Certainly, it wasn't a term he used. Um, However, I'll read you some quotes from Luther and the Reformers that I think make it pretty clear that he did believe in inerrancy, despite the fact he never used that precise term. Quote from Martin Luther in 1519, I have learned to ascribe the honor of infallibility only to those books that are accepted as canonical. I am profoundly convinced that none of these writers has erred. There is no error in Scripture. None of the writers of Scripture erred. I think it's safe to say Luther held to inerrancy. Or, in his Misuses of the Mass in 1521, since the fathers have often erred, as you confess yourself, who will make us certain as to where they have or have not erred? The saints could err in their writings and sin in their lives, but the scriptures cannot err. There's Luther, the scriptures cannot err. So, even though Luther never used the precise term inerrancy, I think it's pretty clear and easy to demonstrate he, he held to what we understand that to be, which is to say, point A, that everything the scripture speaks to, it speaks to truly. Every claim the scripture makes, every declaration of fact it, it makes is true, and not just in realms of faith. 
um, and religion, the areas that we'd think of religion, but to any area it speaks to. If it says Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, then Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. If the Bible says there's a group of people called the Hittites, then whether or not archaeologists have found them, they only found them recently, there were. It's not simply true in matters of salvation, but in anything it speaks to. Now, it doesn't speak to everything, but what it does speak to, it speaks to truly. That's what we're arguing. Only scripture is inerrant. Now, on this point, Rome would partially agree with Luther. Certainly, Rome would have no complaint that scripture is inerrant. They would have a problem with the word only. You see, in Roman Catholicism, there was another strand of authority, and that was the authority of church councils and tradition passed down, and the authority of the Pope. This view, not originally in the Catholic Church, and Luther and the Reformers would spend much time arguing that this was an innovation in the second century, really coming to prominence between the years 1100 and 1400 AD, but in Luther's day, it was, it was the law of the land. It was the understanding that, that it councils, tradition, um, papal bulls were equally authoritative, that we had an inerrant word, but we also had an inerrant and trustworthy tradition and councils. And that was what they were using to try to defend purgatory, indulgences, and, and the such. Luther argued only scripture is inerrant. Only scripture is inerrant. Everything it speaks to, it speaks to truly. It can be trusted. And we heard the quote earlier from Rome. He who does not accept the doctrine of the church of Rome and the pontiff of Rome is infallible as a rule of faith from which the scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. That's, that's the difference, Okay. So how do, we, how do we argue this then? Well, I think if we look to the scriptures, we'll see point B here. Oh, no, sorry. If we look to the scriptures, we'll see that any claim that contradicts scripture is wrong, no matter the source. In fact, if you'll turn to Galatians chapter 2, keep your finger here in 2 Timothy, but turn to Galatians chapter 2. And Rome, of course, believed that Peter was the first pope. Peter, who was married was also the same Peter that the Apostle Paul not only rebuked publicly, but wrote about. He went on record, went in his permanent file. And the point here is that Peter was wrong in a matter of faith and practice, in a gospel matter of faith and practice. The scripture demonstrates this, shows this. Someone as trustworthy as Peter is not at all times inerrant. Galatians chapter two, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Paul is a hypocrite, stands condemned, and he leads others astray into his error. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here would be the very first pope 
according to Rome, erring in a matter of gospel conduct and faith, leading others into that error. And yet Rome is insisting in papal inerrancy. (laughs) Ironically, the previous century to Luther had seen three men simultaneously claiming to be Pope, what is sometimes known as the Pope Wars. You you can read church history. It's, It's bizarre. Popes fighting with councils, councils fighting with the Pope, contradicting each other, the three popes excommunicating each other. And yet with all of that, Rome was insisting, no, 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 these, these councils, these popes are just as trustworthy as Scripture. When the record of Scripture accounts, Peter, of all people, erred in a matter of gospel faith and conduct, leading others to play the hypocrite with him, was rebuked. No, no, we, we, the Scripture doesn't allow for any competition. The Scripture's claim to truth with a capital T is unique. So what what would be a modern challenge to this for us? I don't think we're in danger of of following a pope. I do think we have a danger of of viewing naturalistic science as also bringing to the table capital T truth. I I say naturalistic science. Science is um, a matter of of observation, the inductive principle. And the, the, the founding scientists were... Christians, they were understanding. Guys like like Newton and Kepler understood that what they were doing was studying, examining the the order, the pattern that God had created. That the God who said to the waves, no further, the God who led the stars out in their course had given us seasons and times and regularity and they were examining it, seeing what God had done. But nowadays, the, the, the primary School of science is naturalistic science, which means a scientific study that rules out God and the supernatural from the get-go. And whereas men can be wonderful in observing and gathering data, that data has to be interpreted, that data has to be um, synthesized, and yet, in many places, naturalistic science wants to challenge Scripture, and, and Christians get nervous. Now, let me say something. I... I'm not a, I'm not, I have no problem with science, and I fully believe that everything the Bible says is true, and everything the Bible says will be borne out in the world and seen to be true when rightly understood. However, I have no problem with expecting that at certain times, as we're conducting our scientific inquiries, things we think we're learning may conflict with Scripture, and when that happens, we need not be embarrassed or afraid. The Scriptures are true. God has spoken. So when a predominance of of scientists insists that there wasn't a global flood, and the Bible says there was, there was. Now, I believe the evidence rightly understood. If we get it all in, we'll bear that out. But in the meantime, we don't need to be afraid or embarrassed or backpedal. The Bible insists that a man and a woman unlawfully ate a piece of fruit in a garden thousands, not millions, of years ago. I, I say that because... Luke's gospel starts with a genealogy tracking Jesus back to Adam. Get that. Luke thinks you can track the descent of Jesus from Adam and Eve, which means the events that took place in that garden took place in the category of thousands of years ago, not millions. If the Bible is true, if God has spoken. That also means, and I see this now more commonly, that people are... With the, with the new LGBT understanding of genders being fluid, are trying to bring in scientific research to back that up. And again, where science challenges or disagrees with Scripture, 
The scripture is true. We, we don't need to be embarrassed. We don't need to be afraid. Now, we need to be humble, and say, I, I don't think that's true. What we need to understand is that science is constantly, in our scientific discoveries, refining itself, reforming itself. I read an article this morning that based upon a tooth found in a riverbed in Germany, the entire understanding of human ancestry is being questioned and overturned. And that type of stuff happens because we don't know if we have all the data. In fact, we know we don't have all the data, and so as new data comes in, it can challenge previous conceptions, and that's, that's as it is and as it should be. Scripture, however, is not subject to change. So whereas we are not in danger, largely, of, of raising up church councils and popes to be on an equal footing with Scripture, I think we can, if we're nervous, be worried when we hear that scientists say, and then we get all concerned when what scientists say today challenges what we understand to be in the Bible. Relax. It's okay. God's word, only scripture is inerrant. Only scripture is inerrant. Scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, the end of it is death. That just because something makes sense to me doesn't mean it's right. We are not sources of capital T truth. We are not. One modern challenge. There are others. I'm just giving one example. Naturalistic science. Second, I mean, third, only Scripture is sufficient. Only Scripture is sufficient. And if you're not there, please turn back to 2 Timothy. This was the other inroads that Rome made to challenge Scripture's authority. First, they elevated tradition and the Pope to an equal footing with Scripture, or superior footing, so, so there was multiple sources of truth, but the second way that they minimized Scripture, the second area the Reformers had to push back on is claiming the Bible didn't speak to nearly enough topics. So the Bible spoke to plenty of things, sure, but not nearly enough things, so if you wanted to know, for instance, how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, you would need a church council to answer that. If you wanted to know a definitive answer on contraceptive use or any number of other things that Rome has spoken to dogmatically, you don't turn to the scriptures, you turn to the council, because sadly the scriptures are not sufficient, according to Rome. It doesn't speak to enough stuff. There are matters of faith and conduct we need answers to that we don't turn to scripture for, we turn to men. That's their understanding. And yet, Paul insists in Timothy that the Scripture contains everything needed to equip God's people for every good work. It's right there, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every good work, not some good works, not most good works, every good work. Now you need to understand the claim that's being made here. Scripture does not claim sufficiency for everything. If you want to go repair your car and you're trying to figure out what the timing should be on your engine, the Scripture will not give you that information. If you're trying to figure out how to conduct open heart surgery, what to cut, what not to cut. The scriptures will not give you that information. They don't claim to be sufficient for everything. They claim to be sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Every good work. So here's a simple way of deciding, determining, if a given topic is something that scripture claims its sufficiency for. You simply ask, is this a matter of good works? Is this a matter of ethics? 
Is this something God has said is good or bad? If it is, then scripture says, hey, I've got everything you need to handle this. So give you some examples. Is it a matter of good works, what age to toilet train your child? No. As long as they get toilet trained at some point. <laughs> but there is no magic date given in scripture of how old you must begin. So therefore, that's not a matter of every good work. Scripture doesn't claim its sufficiency. Um, I, I got another one. What about like Hawkeyes or Cyclones? Now, Greg Street will insist that is a matter of ethics. <laughs> but no, it's not. You're, which sports team you're going to root for, that's fine. But let me ask you a different question. What about discouragement and hope? What about anger, anxiety? What about those things? Scripture have anything to say ethically about that? Like, fix your hope firmly at the grace to be revealed on in Christ. Do not be anxious about anything but everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. Does God give commands? Does he speak to those types? And all of a sudden, we are in the realm of what Scripture claims its sufficiency for. And I know some things can be tricky and some things can even be a foot in both worlds. We, we know from some studies that thyroid issues can, can make people struggle with depression. So to say that scripture is sufficient doesn't claim there is no physiological issues going involved. But I want you to understand modern challenges today would, would try to hedge scripture in, which brings us to our next point. The scripture needs no supplement. The scripture needs no supplement. The Bible doesn't need a part two or an appendix at the back. God has given us everything we need for every good work. That's the claim of Scripture. Which means first, we do not need popes and councils. Now, that doesn't mean we throw church history out. I think church history is very useful. Our church has a doctrinal statement. I've enjoyed reading historic theology. I mean, after all, I'm quoting Luther this morning. The scripture needs no such things. We don't need such things. Let me read to you some passages that actually warn against the very things that popes and councils try to do. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. You hear that? Do not go beyond what is written becoming puffed up in favor of one another. Second John 1, 9, that's a typo. Second John 1, 9. John gives this warning. Everyone who does not, oh, sorry, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead does not abide or remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Okay? That's a pretty strong statement. Or Jesus is even clearer in Matthew 15, 9. Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's that's pretty clear. Ought we to take the councils and the church traditions and treat them as equally authoritative as Scripture? What, what should we do, Jesus? In vain do these people try to worship me, teaching as the commandments, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
Jesus warning us, whatever we do with our statements and our, and our counsels, and there's a counsel recorded in Acts 15. If, if I manage my time properly, we'll take a look at it this morning. There are, those things have uses. They don't produce commandments of God. That's what they don't do. In vain do these people worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what are some modern challenges to the sufficiency of Scripture? Scripture doesn't need a supplement. It doesn't need additional content from councils and popes. I'll, I'll give you, there's many places, I think, again, where we can treat the Bible as not having enough. Um, some would argue that running a church, we need to bring in principles from business uh, and, and the world on running businesses as if the Scripture doesn't tell us enough to be a church. But I think probably the most pernicious and, and the largest opening is in the area of psychology. And again, I, don't misunderstand me. It's trying to throw the baby out in the bathwater. There's nothing valuable in psychological study. But what you see more and more and more is this growing hegemony of, of psychology where, where basically if you have small problems, little problems, your pastor can help. But if you've got real problems, you need a trained psychologist. You need a professional and all of a sudden, once you've got a real problem, something with a disorder or syndrome at the end of it, all of a sudden, this has nothing to do with spiritual matters. This has everything to do with professionals. And the Bible is now excluded from discussion. I mean, imagine, just, just to demonstrate this, imagine somebody dealing with depression and anxiety being told by their psychologist, I think perhaps you may have some unconfessed sin in your life. Yet read through the Psalms. It's precisely anxiety, sorrow, and depression that David experienced when he kept quiet and hid his sin. Read through the curses in Deuteronomy where God says, if you're not faithful, I will place the terror upon you so that you'll run at the sound of a crackling leaf. Not to say that all depression, all anxiety comes from unconfessed sin, but certainly some or much of it does. And you're dealing with a profession that rules out such possibilities. And the Bible gets hedged in, and its zone of, of area of effect is smaller and smaller. And this is happening within the church. Christians are taught, Christians accept. The Bible's got good help if you've got small problems, you've got real big problems. The Bible can't help you. No, 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 that has nothing to do with Scripture. This is, this is, this is a disorder. Even take something like ADHD, which I'm not denying has physical causes. I, I don't know one way or the other, but it may well. The scripture does speak to being slow to speak and quick to listen. The scripture does speak to disciplining yourself. The scripture does speak to self-control, right? So at the very least, it has something to do with spiritual, biblical matters. And yet people again and again treat it as, oh, that has nothing to do with the Bible. This is ADHD. Well, at the very least, it has something to do with the Bible. The very least. And yet we, we accept this because the world tells us Oh, the scripture doesn't speak to this. As though God's people had no way of dealing with their emotional life for the first 1,800 years of the church. But praise the Lord, Freud came along, and so now we can finally deal with our emotions. But that is the implication. That is the unescapable implication of what so many in the church have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. We, we don't accept 
the scripture's sufficiency. So when we first look at it in regards to challenges contradicting it, do we trust that what God has spoken is true? Now we need to understand it rightly, we need to make sure we're not misunderstanding it, but once we've reached the meaning of scripture, whatever that is, I don't care how many scientists in white lab coats disagree, they're wrong. Likewise, has God given us enough for life and godliness for every good work or not? He has. And again, I, I am one who I've benefited from, and I think we can benefit from psychological studies. I'm not saying throw it all out. I am saying whenever it tries to insist or imply that God's word is not sufficient for areas that God's word speaks to, we've got to have our antenna poke up and say, oh, no, 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 that can't be right. That can't be right. Paul warns of this very thing in Colossians. Chapter two, verse three, he insists that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And a few verses later, verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Don't let people take you captive by human tradition, worldly philosophy and not Christ. That's the warning scripture gives. Okay, final point then. This is more of a summary. Only scripture is our final authority. Only scripture is our final authority. Which means scripture is more certain than angels and apostles. The apostle Paul himself writes in Galatians chapter one. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Scripture has more authority if the resurrected apostle Paul were to show up here or an angel from God were to appear. Scripture would have more authority. You don't have time, but you can go read 2 Peter 1 where Peter talks. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the Lord clothed in glory and he says, and we have something more sure, God's word. Turn to Acts 15. Because scripture is more certain than councils and creeds. We have an ecumenical church council in Acts 15. The church gathered to discuss the issue. Should the Gentiles be compelled to be circumcised? if they've come to faith in Christ. And at this council, we have some rather significant and authoritative fellows. Verse six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So we've got the apostles, the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, then Peter speaks, Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul. So we got Peter, Barnabas, and Paul. Then verse 13, after they had finished speaking, James replied, James, Jesus' brother, who wrote the epistle James. Brothers, listen to me. And they come to a conclusion. They come to one mind. Now I want you to notice the phrase that Luke uses three times. We have a Catholic, Catholic with a lowercase just means universal. A Catholic ecumenical council here. First church council. And they've got a document they're gonna make. They're gonna give out to the church. If any group of people assembled could claim the authority of inerrancy, the authority to bind consciences, I would submit to you it's this group of men. 
Peter wrote two epistles. Paul wrote a number of epistles. James wrote scripture. We have three men who wrote scripture in the room. All the apostles, the elders of the church, they come to one mind. Look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, with the whole church. Choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. We have included in Acts their document, their, for lack of a better word, their doctrinal statement, their bull, their decree. It's not a, actually, it's not a decree or a bull, it's, as you'll see clear. Brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, that we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us. Same phrase used in verse 22. Having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. You have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no other burden on you than these requirements. And it goes on to, no, you don't need to be, no, you don't need to be circumcised. This group would claim no greater authority than it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Isn't that amazing? So when you look at Martinsdale Community Church's doctrinal statement, I would submit to you, this is the document, the summary of beliefs that seems good to us. And we invite people who are thinking of joining, does it seem good to you? Let's talk about it. This statement doesn't have authority in and of itself, but it is significant that all these people here agreed, came to one mind, it seemed good to them, and we agreed when we just added our recent update to our doctrinal statement on marriage, it seemed good to all of us. Significant. So I look through church history and I see you know, the different creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the statements on Jesus' deity, and everybody in attendance in the universal church came to one mind and said the same thing. Yeah, I want to read that. That's significant. It's not a claim to inerrancy and authority like scriptures. These men don't make that claim. All they're willing to say is it seemed good to us. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And it certainly means that only scripture is more certain than the wisdom and opinions of men. Turn, turn finally to Romans 3. And I do believe we'll sing our closing song this morning. Turn to Romans 3. I want you to get another massive statement the Bible makes. Again, I, I do believe that the Bible speaks truly to reality. And when we rightly understand what's going on in the world around us, we will see it conform to Scripture. But while we're gathering data, while we are seeing dimly, while we know in part, don't be surprised that some things that God's word says challenge your understanding, challenge the wisdom of men, challenge the agreed upon conclusions of men in science, men in the academy, men in the psychological field. The Apostle Paul makes a rather bold statement in Romans 3, 4. Go back to Romans 3, 3. What if someone are unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. I think that means, on any given topic, is, is gender a fluid construct? We'll take that one. Is it negotiable? Is it plastic? There's more than two. 
if every single person on planet earth agreed with one voice, no, it's not, and God said, yes, it is, God's, win. God's true, and every man's a liar. If every single person on the planet earth said, there was no global flood, God says, there was. Jesus says, there was. God's right, we're wrong. The issue of biblical authority is only tested truly at that point where you most disagree. When I talk to people about biblical authority, I don't care what you think about those, as regards to authority, I don't care. What you think of those passages you agree with, that you love, that you write on your wall, that you think are wonderful. It does not take authority to get you to submit to that. The example I frequently use is this. I need no authority to give you $20. I need authority to demand you give me $20. Right? That makes sense? I don't need authority to give you something you're inclined to do. The Bible needs no authority to get you to agree to those parts of it that you think are wonderful, true. This is so good. The test of biblical authority, the test of what the authority in your life will absolutely be at that point where the Bible says something you most strongly disagree with, you're most embarrassed about, you're most inclined to say no. Now who wins? Now who wins? You and what seems right to you? You and the legion of people who agree with you? Or God's word? Now it is possible you've misunderstood God's word. We should go back and check our math there. But at the end of the day, when God's word says something that seems foolish to you, and the Apostle Paul says God intentionally did it that way so that by the foolishness of the word preached, the wisdom of men be destroyed. So when you find God's wisdom seeming foolish and a challenging our wisdom, what do you do? That's where we decide what we learn about what we believe about authority and in no other place. So do we receive God's word as inerrant? Do we receive it as though God is speaking? Do we understand that how we treat God's word is how we treat God? Do we recognize it without error? Only with no competitors, nothing else in this world bringing a truth of, of such certainty and authority. And do we recognize its sufficiency that it doesn't need a supplement? I, I, I would submit to you that the battle Luther fought 500 years ago is, is very much needed to be fought now. In a different foe, in a different place, in different corners, but the church need not be ashamed or embarrassed of what God has said. We should trust it, hold to it. Though all other men are liars, let God be found true. I'm gonna call the worship team up. We're gonna close with a song um, speaking of the wonder of God's word and how God is pleased through his word to save and change us. Will you please stand and sing?